history that way. Exodus 32, we're going to be in verses 15 through 29 uh, tonight. Uh, this is the chapter that uh, tells us about the golden calf incident in Israel's history. Moses is on Sinai, and the children of Israel are sinning with the golden calf. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 15 together. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. But the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it me, and I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. When Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate uh, throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Israel, I'm sorry, the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. For Moses said, had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in the word. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, and thank you, Lord, that we are not left to our own devices and weak understandings, but we have uh, your truth and your word. Father, we thank you that it is living and powerful, and Lord, it is able to meet the needs of our hearts tonight, and we would commit ourselves to the understanding of it by faith through the power of your Holy Spirit tonight. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would uh, give us understanding. And Father, we thank you for the opportunities you've given us from time to time to help others understand the word. We would pray for Mark and Gage and Zeb and Jennifer and their family tonight and just ask that you would, like you did for Lydia, uh, continue to open their hearts to understand the things that are spoken by Paul. 
and the other authors of Scripture. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Times in which we live have been described as the fulfillment of the predictions of two dystopian novelists, um, George Orwell and his high school French teacher, Aldous Huxley. Uh, Huxley published his Brave New World in 1939, and Orwell published his 1984 in 1949. So while both novels predict the end of our free, civilized society, the men did postulate different paths for getting there. Uh, Orwell's Oceana uh, oppresses people through fear with an endless war and a technologically advanced surveillance state. Huxley's world state, on the other hand, uh, amuses people into submission with recreational drugs and a culture of free sex. I think they both had a point, now that I look back on it. <laughs> Huxley believed that his theory was more likely than Orwell's, and he sent him a letter after Orwell uh, published his book telling him so. In our chapter, Israel has come under the tyranny of what the Bible calls a great sin, what Moses called a great sin. Look at verse uh, 21 with me of Exodus 32. It says, And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And in a verse we, hadn't, uh, we haven't read yet, verse 31, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. So here Israel has come under the tyranny of a great sin. The tyrant of this passage is the one that Jesus warned us about in John chapter 8. Uh, the murderer of souls and the liar, the father of lies. Uh, Jesus calls Satan that in John 8.44. As Moses and Joshua descend Sinai, Joshua fears that Israel has succumbed to a George Orwell scenario, that there was a noise of war in the camp. It says that in verse 17, right? And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. He could hear it from all the way up on the mountain. Moses corrects him, for Moses knew that the problem was actually the singing and the dancing, not war. Verses 18 and 19. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery or victory in war, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome by war, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So clearly from this passage, there is a kind of singing and dancing that sounds very much like war at least from a distance. And this kind of singing and dancing pagans have always used to worship their false gods in emotional ecstasy and sexual attraction. And Israel had joined this chorus, though they were God's people. It is an art form, I believe, that still tempts God's people today, as we all know here. And Huxley had it correct when it comes to the tyranny of Exodus 32. This tyrant had seduced the people of Israel uh, through this kind of worship. 
So Exodus 32 is about this great sin. The verse 10 verses actually describe the nature of the sin. Um, I kind of organized my thoughts this way, that the sin was great because it was great forgetfulness, it was great idolatry, and it was a great offense to a holy God. And then verses 11 through 14, Moses intercedes for the people. He does so effectively. He asks the Lord some important questions, and uh, he prays for uh, their survival, and the Lord answers his prayer. Now, as we come to verse 15, uh, the Lord has told Moses to put some feet to his prayers, to go down the mountain, and to deal with the sin of the people in person. The Bible tells us that God is the father of his people, that we are his children, and that whom the Lord loves as a father, he chastens. And so this is a passage about the Lord's chastening of his people. The classic New Testament text on God, our Father, being a faithful chastener of his children is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. You can turn there if you'd like. I'd like to take time to read it here for you. It says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, Shall we not rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? He's the perfect Father. He does this chastening correctly. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And though chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. That's the purpose of the Lord's chastening in our lives. He's a faithful father, and we are his children. So this is what the Lord does for his people who have sinned a great sin in our passage. And I want us to see three things about this chastening work of God tonight in the lives of us, his children. So number one, our Father chastens us because we break his law. Our Father chastens us because we break his law, though we are his children. Uh, take a look at verse 15 again. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. The tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And we noted verse 17 and 18 and the first part of 19 as they hear the camp and the singing and the dancing. And the end of verse 19 says, Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands, and he brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder, 
and started upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. So this is why God chastened Israel, because they broke his law. Our Father chastens us because we do break his law. My brother and I were somewhat notorious and still uh, my sisters know us this way as uh, those who broke some of mom's precious possessions when we were growing up. There was, uh, speaking of Switzerland, my mom had this beautiful cabinet of blue Swiss china that was uh, just off our kitchen. And uh, I can't remember if it was my brother and I or, or I who did it, which probably means it was me, uh, but I want to include him somehow. But uh, the whole cabinet came crashing down and all the Swiss china that had come from Switzerland was destroyed in this uh, careless act of mom's young son. She still was my mom after that, by the way. She didn't put me up for adoption or anything. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> but that wasn't the worst of it. Um, the worst day of our uh, notorious behavior was probably we were playing football in the living room and just off the living room was the front foyer and in the front foyer there was this beautiful vase or vase it's about this tall it's handcrafted it was hand painted uh, it was a gift from my mother's mother uh, who had purchased it in Arizona for my mom to kind of thank her for her prayers because my my grandmother had moved to Arizona because she was suffering from bone cancer. She couldn't live in Wisconsin anymore because of her health condition. So moving to Arizona because of bone cancer, she bought this vase for my mom. And uh, it's a real treasure to my mom. And so we're playing football, you know, and Kent's trying to cut around me. And I grab him and I throw him down. And, uh, you know, the, the idiot ran right into <laughs> when I tackled him mom's vase and just smashed it to smithereens it was terrible we felt awful on these occasions and mom cried terribly on both for we had smashed something very precious well on this occasion moses smashes something very precious doesn't he it's a stone tablets with the law of god on them i believe that it had the content of basically chapter 20 the Ten Commandments and all the commentary that went in there, it was basically the uh, covenantal statement, the covenantal law uh, that God established for his people um, there on Mount Sinai after he redeemed them out of Egypt. And our text reminds us how special these tablets were in verse 16. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tablets. God had with his own finger written on these pieces of stone that Moses smashes at the bottom of the mount. But you know, as we read on in Exodus, we will not find any regret on the part of Moses for smashing these tablets. Nor will we find any rebuke from the Lord for doing so. We might want to assume that there was such, but you won't find it in Exodus. No, what the Lord and Moses are really upset about instead is that God's people had smashed to smithereens the words on those stones, the laws on those stones. And that's what 
Moses is dealing with then here. Moses smashes the tablets, I believe, to illustrate for the people what they just did to God's law. It was they who smashed God's law. And then he burns the calf. I believe it was made out of wood, Bible teachers believe, and then overlaid with gold. And so you had to kind of burn it to destroy it. And uh, you would crush the gold down and with the ash and the dust, he put that into the water and he made all of Israel drink from that water, this bitter uh, concoction of their idolatry. As I thought about and read about that, I'm also preaching from the Gospel of John. I think I've preached from John here on Sunday evenings. And in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a a very thirsty woman, the Samaritan woman. And he speaks to her about this living water, which if somebody drinks, they will never thirst again. And what a contrast. Jesus offers this, this living water. And these idolatrous people of God choose instead to drink the bitter potion of their idolatry instead. So Moses is using some of these things, I think, to illustrate the awfulness of their sin and to convict them of it. So it is God's will that the redeemed uh, life be a lawful life. But Israel decided instead to do to God's law what Moses illustrated by smashing the tablets. And so just like a father with his children, the Lord chastened Israel because they broke his law. And we do the same. We break God's law. Our God deserves our obedience, doesn't he? He made us. He redeemed us. He sustains us. He gave us a great sunset tonight to remind us of his glory. He sent his son Jesus to die for us, to die in our place, who was obedient for us unto death, even the death of the cross. This God deserves our obedience, and yet we break his law. How intent are we as God's children to obey him? We see that he will rightly and lovingly discipline us when we break his law and choose the pollution of the world's idolatry instead. So our Father chastens us because we do break his law. All right, number two, our Father chastens us with omniscience. We're going to go on to this conversation between Moses and Aaron, his brother, beginning in verse one, and we'll see that God chastens with omniscience. Uh, Verse 21 says, And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. (laughs) What do you know? (laughs) 
Isn't that funny? I mean, <laughs> um, but that's what Aaron said to Moses. This past week, uh, a young lady in our church joined us for prayer time on Thursday night, and she had had a real hard day. She teaches at Dublin Christian Academy, the fifth grade, um, over there with Phil. And uh, uh, she was in tears. Uh, she's got some boys in her class that were very disrespectful to her and uh, that day. And um, turns out she had a better day on Friday, and uh, she was getting help to deal with that. But uh, when I listened to her story, I... I just thought back to when I was in fifth grade, and I thought to myself, you know, it's a lot harder for fifth grade teachers today than it was back when I was in fifth grade. Because when I was in fifth grade, teachers and principals had this neat little tool that's called a paddle. And this was true in the public schools as well as in the Christian school that I went to. I remember uh, the paddle very well in both, although better in the Christian school because that's when... Uh, I had opportunity to grab a chair and get a paddling uh, once or twice or three times myself from a teacher. And when that happened to me, without fail, I always thought somehow that I was more innocent than my teacher did. That this whole episode was unjust in some important way. You know, there's something in a sinner like me and like you that wants to immediately excuse his sin and deny the justice of an authority's just chastening. Aaron is an example of us sinners in this regard in the passage. And in these verses, he tries to deny that he should be chastened by the Lord. The root of Aaron's sin, I believe, is his fear of man. Uh, Moses addresses that in verse 21. He says, What did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? Oh, that's probably where Aaron's sin uh, started, the fear of man. Whenever we are doing something out of the fear of man, it is normally the wrong thing to do, right? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, as he sent them out to be witnesses and preachers, he said this, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And again, he was speaking to his disciples, sending them out as witnesses and preachers. And I think we can conclude from that that when you're witnessing or you're preaching, the temptation is especially strong to fear man. Uh, so the fear of man is where Aaron began to go wrong. And then Aaron possesses, uh, or pro progresses rather, from the fear of others to blaming them for his great sin, right? Verses 22 and 23, Moses, you know what these people are like. Um, they demanded this of me, make us gods, which will go before us. And, oh, by the way, Moses, you were a long time up on that hill. And, uh, you know, it would have helped a little bit if you had come back a little sooner. So Aaron does not fail to mention that they also said, as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You did take a long time up on that hill, Moses. And so Aaron is blaming 
the people, and even Moses. He claims that it is the people's fault that he led them wholesale into idolatry. And he even has the self-defense mechanism to charge Moses with partial blame. Blaming others is actually the exact opposite of what we must do as believers, as God's children, when we're confronted with our sin, right? Rather than believing, blaming them, we ought to blame ourselves. And blaming ourselves is what the Bible calls confession. That's how we are to deal with our sin. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Mo, you know, Solomon wrote that, right? Did Solomon have a sin or two that he needed to confess? <laughs> this is a need of believers. We sang uh, some hymns tonight about the victory over sin at Calvary and how uh, at last I, my sin I learned and the law I had spurned. And this all happened before I was saved, right? Well, that's true. But we still have this flesh, don't we? We still have this sin nature. We still have this thing that the Holy Spirit has to war against or else we do what Aaron did. The God-chosen high priest of Israel whose descendants would follow him in that lofty office serving the Lord. Even he needed to deal with his sin did you notice Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. It doesn't say, He that sins shall not prosper. That's not the issue. We're sinners. We will sin. The question is, are we going to cover our sin? Are we going to confess and forsake our sin? That's what Solomon is getting at there in that verse. 1 John 1, verses 10, 8 through 10 emphasizes in the New Testament uh, our need for this road to recovery from our sin. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So when was the last time you told yourself, I have not sinned? When was the last time you admitted, Lord, I have sinned? When we admit what we have been and what we have done, we really only tell the Lord what he already knows, because he's omniscient. And he can't make excuses, can't hide, can't dodge the way Aaron is trying to do here. One last thing to notice about Aaron's excuses uh, shows its ugly head in verse 24 before we leave this point. That's where he says, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me. I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. It's, it's like Aaron is claiming a supernatural miracle happened. It's like, you know, Lord, I, I, or Moses, I, I kind of thought this was a little fishy. Wasn't sure this was 
right according to the Lord's will. But man, this miracle happened. And when I saw the miracle, I knew it must be okay. Well, it's a fake miracle for one thing. He's lying. Back in verse 4, we read about his stylus that he used, and he fails to mention it here. But even real supernatural signs and wonders can never justify disobedience to God's word, God's law. Paul describes the rise of the Antichrist in terms of the supernatural, and I think these will be truly supernatural occurrences. As Paul uh, says this about the Antichrist, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 When Jesus was asked by his enemies for a sign, he taught this in Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. So, our Father chastens us with omniscience. Don't be deceived by those who tell us to disobey because of signs and wonders happening. We cannot hide from him what we are or what we have done, so let's not try. And finally tonight, our Father chastens us with a choice. Father chastens us with a choice. Beginning in verse 25 again. When Moses saw that the people were naked, for the Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, the singing and dancing, by the way, this kind of thing, not only is loud like war, it also involves this kind of nakedness. People disrobe when they're doing this. Verse 26, Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing uh, this day. So our Father chastens us with a choice. You know, the choices of sinners are difficult to understand except for the fact that we are sinners and we've made some of the same choices that we see them make from time to time. Uh, give you an example. I was at a drive-up window at a bank a couple of weeks ago and was helped by a very nice uh, young lady at the window. Um, she even pulled out one of those dog treats. She saw my dog in the car and said, here, I got a dog treat for you while she's doing the transaction for me. And I had a track in my coat pocket, and uh, Holy Spirit kind of prompted me, reminded me that the track was there somehow, and uh, I felt the desire to give her the track. And so after she got done and she pulled her drawer back out and gave me my receipt, I I said, you know, you gave me a nice gift. I got a gospel tract I want to give to you. And I plopped it down in her drawer and uh, thought she'd thank me for it and maybe read it. But she said, no, 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 we can't take things like that. You know, taken seriously, that little pamphlet could introduce her to the one whom to know 
right is life eternal. And she's telling me, I think trying to speak on the on behalf of TD Bank that she's not allowed to take this. But she's not the first teller I've given a track to. <laughs> this has happened before and they all received them. I didn't tell her that. But I did tell her that I think the Lord wanted me to give it to you. So I'm not allowed to pick it up again. And it just stayed in her drawer and she had to pull it in. Now what she did after that, I don't know. But she got a track kind of force fed on her that time. But uh, the choices of sinners are difficult to understand, except that we too are sinners. Before the trial of chastening begins, the Lord gives Israel a gracious choice. In verse 26, it says, He stood at the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. That's the choice. Father chastens us with a choice. How are we going to respond to that chastening? Will we be on the Lord's side? We're told by the text that the Levites, the tribe of Aaron, by the way, responded. And I think they're singled out because it is they whom Moses calls upon to execute the Lord's chastening judgment uh, upon 3,000 of the Israelites things to mention in this regard. First of all, God has just given birth to the nation of Israel. It's a nation, and it's a very unique nation. It's a theocracy. Um, no other nation uh, of, ancient, of the ancient Near East or anywhere else in the world at that time uh, was a theocracy, but this nation was a theocracy. And so the sin that Moses is dealing with in this context is a capital crime uh, against uh, society, against like, like we would suffer uh, uh, for committing a crime in our society. And uh, this judgment is going to be executed on those that do not repent. Now, the text also tells us that the Levites went out and executed 3,000 of their brothers, uh, Israel, uh, Israeli brothers. Um, and it doesn't really tell us this, but I think the best way to interpret this is to say that all but those 3,000 came on to the Lord's side when Moses gave them that choice. Otherwise, it's very hard for me to understand how the Levite tribe uh, being outnumbered by the other 11 tribes of Israel, could go into those 11 tribes of Israel and execute 3,000 of those tribes. You know, Maybe you have it worked out some other way. But I think uh, my interpretation is that all but the 3,000 uh, obeyed the Lord's direction here. And that's why they survived. And so 3,000, though, did not, and they fell. So if I'm right about that, a relatively small minority had carried the day for the enemy of God and his people. They number over a million at this point, and we've got 3,000 here. A small minority of the nation had intimidated Aaron and had influenced their neighbors to contribute their gold to this great sin of the whole nation. 
you ask the internet what percentage of American adults identify as transgender, the answer will come back at about 1%, which is oh, way too many. That's a lot of people. Um, it's probably way, way more than five years ago even. But it's 1%. And look what is happening to women's sports and to school bathrooms because of this small minority. In 2022, a Gallup poll concluded that 7.1% of Americans identify with the entire LGBTQ lifestyle. So that would include the transgender, 7.1%. means 93% of Americans do not. And we're dealing with a small minority here. And we have become a nation that no longer understands the meaning of marriage while our First Amendment God-given freedoms of worship and conscience are threatened in our courts because of the 7%. Road signs litter yards in New Boston, anyway, that tell us that our town is not our home if we disapprove of the LGBTQ agenda. Churches that are no longer gospel preaching or Bible teaching hang gay pride flags proudly over their front doors. And so the overblown power of the sinful minority is still with us in the continuing war between the Lord and the tyranny of sin. We know what it is to lose battles in this war. We're sinners too. But our Father chastens his sinful people with a gracious choice. When we commit worldly sin and idolatry, he asks us, are you on the Lord's side? And the goal of this question is stated in verse 29, isn't it? For Moses had said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon, a upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. That's the end game. That's why a loving father chastens his children, that he may bestow upon them a blessing this day. Renewed consecration to our mission to win the lost and make disciples and the fullness of the blessings of God's Holy Spirit empowering that work in our lives. Await a day in which we humbly bow and tell the Lord, I was wrong, please forgive me. Perhaps this day needs to be your day of blessing. Those last two words of our passage are important words. Blessing this day. <laughs> the Apostle Paul put the, important, the importance of those words, that time frame, this way in 2 Corinthians 6.2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Holy Spirit convicts our hearts and we get right with the Lord and confess our sin. It will have to happen in a time called now, a time called this day, a time called today. And when we have a day like that, we are going to experience the truth of the promise that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we'll be consecrated again to his work and receive the fullness of his blessing.
hands. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege that we have as your children to experience the chastening of a perfect, omniscient, faithful, heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, that you are never an absentee Father. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would be found responsive to that work in our hearts and in our lives, that, Father, we might be not blaming others, but blaming ourselves in confession of sin, and, Lord, that we would be restored to strength, consecration, and usefulness thereby because of your good work in our hearts and our lives. We pray this.